Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined today by our good friend, Tom Nichols. Uh, hey, good morning, first of all. Hey, Charlie. Great to we, be back. We should promote that you and I are going to be doing something. Your book is coming out. Uh, your book, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. And you and I are actually going to do an online chat um, on August 19th about it. Right? Absolutely. We're going to. Uh, unfortunately, due to our you know current pandemic status, it's got to be online, but it's for Politics and Prose, which, of course, is Washington's premier indie bookstore. The place. And, uh, they're they're going to host us, and we're going to talk about the book and, you, and take questions. Um, which should be interesting. So just sort of think of it as a lighter, probably less explicit version of the Bulwark podcast. With audience participation. With audience participation. What could possibly go wrong? Okay, here, here's like an interesting footnote in history that, that I probably should erase since we're, you know, you know, retconning the past so aggressively. I think the last, probably not the last time I was at Politics and Prose, but the last time that I can remember was back in like 1989 or something like that, maybe 1990. Going to a book party for okay, I I got I have to say it I got to do it I just gotta take a deep breath here. Uh, going to a book party for Dinesh D'Souza. Oh sweet, yeah, sweet, sweet, sweet mother, sweet. Of yeah, yeah, I know that's, that's, that's crap. Uh, but you know yeah. that that's actually, and I bet it was for um, illiberal education, right. which wasn't I a think bad so. book. No. And I had written some books about higher education as well. So, you know, we were kind of in that same universe and I thought it was a supportive thing to do. And, oh, gosh. You know, it's but it's interesting because people always reproach us and say, but how could you have, you know, been? Well, and we say, well, they weren't felons then. They were, you know, they hadn't got <laughs> lost their minds then. We didn't know. And I think, you know, there was there was a time when the Tuckers and Dineshes and the, you know, I'll, I, I won't say you know, Coulter Ingram, but there was a time when a lot of younger conservatives 30 years ago, their role models were Buckley and Will and, you know, intellectual writers. And then they decided that because either through a lack of opportunity and certainly because of a lack of talent, they weren't going to be that. They decided, well, I'll just make money, you know, fleecing the rubes and, and, you know, going for the extremism and yeah. because that's where the money was. So sort of like saying, I, I knew Walter White before the meth lab. Yeah, he you know, was my I mean, science was, teacher. I loved a, him. He was a great guy. He, he was, was a no, good science teacher. He used to well, wear the, hush puppies. The, the meth was bad for him. Okay, so we have Tucker, <laughs> Carl, Tucker Carlson in Hungary. I want to get to that. I want to get to this uh, this soundbite from Cory Bush, which um, I think that some of our progressive uh, some of our progressive listeners um, need to talk about, or need to at least listen to us talk about. Uh, but, oh my god! So, so I, I'm I'm a dog person. I think you are a notorious cat person. Can you explain the JD Vance going off about the uh, the, the cat ladies? The, this is something he is you know going off on, and he, and he, and he's done this a couple of times, right? That 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 AOC and Pete Buttigieg are childless cat ladies, and so this is like a right. thing. What? Right. What's with the well, cat lady I, thing? There's some kind of trope in the midst, even even beyond my and your conservative, um, you know, uh, history. Something about you know that the childless cat ladies are the people, you know, that the Democrats are going to empower, and they're going to take away your schools, and they're going to you know, make everybody have a small yappy dog or a tiny cat or, you know, I mean, it's just this weird 
kind of outdated trope that reminds us all that J.D. Vance, you know, that I wasn't wrong when I wrote a piece about J.D. Vance that uh, called him a body part that begins with A, because we never swear on this, but I, yeah. and I, so I would never say asshole. But, yeah. um, you know, he, he he's desperate and thirsty, and he's trying to, it's like he's loose at the control board trying to push all the buttons that will somehow make him a senator that will make the food pellet come out so that he gets to be a senator. And um, it's just stupid. It's just a silly old trope. But I think the more serious part is when he he tries to say, well, all the voters of Ohio, if you don't elect me, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be governed by childless Latinas from New York and drag queens from San Francisco. It is like kind of and, Mad Libs, right? I mean, they're just going right, to try right, to combination. Exactly. It'll be childless cat ladies, childless, you know, childless drag, queen, drag queen, cat lady, Latina, Le- something, something. Childless leftists. Okay, you know, speaking of this whole childless thing, this is this is kind of weird because for people who wonder, is it just J.D. Vance in this race too, who could be the stupidest candidate in Ohio, which by the way, he apparently is losing to Josh Mandel. Uh, but uh, so Ben Dominic, who is uh, probably best known to our audience as Meghan McCain's husband, uh, thoroughly deplorable founder of uh, The Federalist and speaking of thirsty, um, you know, doing gigs on Fox News. He had a riff the other day, the other night, maybe last night um, about uh, how leftists hate children. I mean, the, the, I think that the screenshot is why the left hates babies and and so people on social media had to clarify that they did not Photoshop this. This is not a parody. This is Ben Dominic going on Fox News telling people, you know, the one thing that leftists really hate are babies. Let's play the soundbite. I used to wonder where this weird hatred of boys and girls came from until I became a parent myself last year. And I finally realized progressives hate babies because they are crying, sure. drooling, pooping refutations of everything woke leftists believe. Boys and girls are the answer to the left's every argument and the antidote to their every poisonous lie. (laughs) What? Well, you know, this is is where, you know, as you were pointing out, you went to a book event for D'Souza. I mean, I I used to work for Ben. I used to write articles for The Federalist. And there was a time, and people aren't going to believe this, but, you know, I, I will just say again that Ben's a very intelligent guy. He really is. Uh, And this was not, the certainly not the person I knew. And I think the problem is, as it is with everyone in conservative media, they've it, there's a ratchet effect that to get ahead of your competitors, you have to say something stupider and crazier than whoever got the last kind of a dopamine jolt in the attention economy. So then you say something stupid and crazy, and then someone out crazies you, you know, whether it's Ingraham or Levin or whoever it is. And then you've got to say, well, okay, I want to be in this game. And I think he's just, you know, I think like, I don't think yeah. he's that unusual. I think like no. everybody in conservative media, it's what stupid, crazy thing can I say to keep the eyeballs of scared, you know, whacked out old people glued on me? Um, you know, because when he says they hate your children, uh, for to a Fox audience, what he's really <laughs> saying is they hate your grandchildren. Yeah. So, so there are people nodding their heads going, yes, obviously, uh, progressives uh, who run yes. for office, they hate children. They they, they have no children themselves. They, they were never children themselves. Uh, actually, could you just play this again? Jonathan, could you just play that soundbite again? I used to wonder where this weird hatred was, of boys and girls came from hatred, until hatred. I became a parent myself last year. 
And I finally uh, realized progressives hate babies finally. because they are crying, <laughs> drooling, pooping refutations of everything woke leftists believe. Boys and girls are the answer to the left's wow. every argument and the antidote to their every poisonous lie. I, I'm having a hard. I'm having a hard time. Are you going to turn that up? I see. I thought he was going. They're they're drooling, pooping examples of what progressives like, right? I mean, it's I, the drooling, pooping refutations of where did that sentence start well, and also, it end? How, how does I, it? How does suddenly having a baby make that occur to you? I had a baby, <laughs> you know, 17 years ago, and I don't recall leftists walking up to me and hissing in my face about. You know, if anything, I couldn't tell the politics of people who were because my daughter was really, really cute and she was an adorable baby. And, you know, I don't remember anybody. I don't I don't even know what this is about other what, than what you said. Yeah, it, it is. It is. They're yeah. going for the pellet. And, you know, he's on Fox and he's thinking, you know, I nobody actually knows who I am except that I'm Meghan McCain's husband. So I need to say the most outrageous possible things because maybe I'll, I'll go viral and may, maybe I'll get some of the table scraps from, you know, Tucker's folks. I don't know. Maybe so you'll be speaking, talking about him right now. So speaking of scraps. Triggering you know, the libs, man. I've, it's triggering 101. So there's Tucker Carlson in Hungary. Just a little bit of background. Hungary is this sort of fascist adjacent authoritarian regime run by Viktor Orban. There's been this sort of weird fetish of some people on the right about, about Hungary, which is um, explicitly illiberal, post-democratic. And, you know, for people who think that perhaps you and I have overblown our discussion of the fascist curious right uh, the articles that appeared in american greatness some of the other things where the, the sort of the the nostalgia for authoritarianism and for those of you that think that oh come on guys these guys aren't really fascist they are not really that illiberal and authoritarian there is freaking tucker carlson in hungary sucking up to victor orban so talk to me about that because you know as jonathan chait says Apparently, Tucker Carlson has seen the future of, of, of the right or the Republican Party, and it's fascist. It's like, okay, I, you know, the most, more, uh, you, you, you'll understand this, Tom. The, there's only one thing more annoying than being wrong. It's turning out that you were more right than you thought, which is really annoying because I don't want to be right about this. You know, we were, we were just talking about Ben and in comparison to Tucker. What Ben is doing is silly, and we yeah, can laugh right. about it, and right. it's just goofy and it's fundamentally unserious. What Tucker is doing is serious and dangerous. Yeah. He is uh, making common cause with um, people across the Atlantic who, unfortunately, you know, are, I mean, kind of remember, in theory, Hungary is one of our allies, but, you know, in theory, so is Turkey and a lot of other places. Um, but what he's doing is he's giving top cover to people who are very happy to see a transnational rightist movement tearing apart the United States. And this is incredibly dangerous because, in fact, a lot of the claims about Hungary, the average, first of all, the average Tucker viewer has no idea where Hungary is right. or what's going on there, I'm has no idea. You know, Dave, David Frum pointed out uh, that for all of that talk of nationalism and independence, of course, you know, a, a lot of Hungary's uh, money and well-being is sustained by dragging in money from the hated European Union and NATO. Um, and Giant welfare queen. Yeah. 
Well, it's a very it's a very dangerous game. It's an extremely dangerous game, loaded with um, anti-Semitic, uh, very quiet but nonetheless anti-Semitic dog whistles. Um, it is, you know, it is really a t- Tucker is now trying to play in a league at the international level that I think is dangerous, and I think he's probably in over his head. And again, you know, no one would deny that Tucker Carlson's an intelligent person. But I don't think he quite understands the the deep end of the pool he just waded into. Well, maybe here. maybe he does though. See, and and that that is what makes it scary. So, for a little bit of background, Freedom House, which monitors um, human rights and and the state of freedom around the world, notes that that Hungary is a state that has dropped any pretense of respecting democratic institutions. Um, freedom House does not even characterize it as a democracy anymore. And Jonathan Chayton, New York uh, in New Yorker writes in New York Magazine writes. Uh, These are not mere details, and Carlson is not overlooking them. He is laying down a marker in the highest profile way that he can that Orban's iron fist is the future the Republican Party should want. The splashy imprimatur of a Fox News primetime personality who is probably the right's most influential media figure, is an important milestone in the Republican Party's long evolution into authoritarianism. I don't think that's an open statement. So the question is, I guess, why? You know, okay, the guy's making millions. He's got he's got his the buzz. He's got all the influence. What is Tucker? Why would Tucker decide to escalate by going to one of the vilest authoritarian regimes in the world and embracing it? What what is the end game here? What I meant by wandering, you know, into the deep end of the pool is that it seems to me that a lot of guys like Tucker and some of the other American conservatives who are playing this game, for them, it's just all raw material to come back and own the libs and to generate ratings and to, you know, have some great talking points. Again, there's a fundamental uh, lack of seriousness there because these are people that have never really encountered an authoritarian regime. They've never felt endangered personally. Uh, they have never, you know, they've never had to sacrifice. They've never had to take any risks in their lives. And so, you know, to, they, they've they never really been in a place where, you know, they're talking to someone who then has to stop talking to you and walk away from you so that both of you are not arrested. Yeah. For simply having a conversation. He's the, they don't understand that part of it and they think this is all a game. Um and, and they don't they they don't really talk to the people who've ever been arrested. They've never seen the inside of one of those places. And so I think, you know, this is all a uh, as David Frum said about, you know, again, gonna quote David Frum twice here, but it's from one set of Tucker. Tucker likes money and he likes being on TV. And if um playing footsie with with uh fascists around the world um, helps him get money and be on TV, he'll do it. But with he seems he and a lot of the rest of them don't seem to understand that comes the revolution. They're, they're some of the first people who get carted off. Yeah, I have this image, I have an image of him playing with the, with the dragons and just assuming that the dragon will not eat him, uh, that the dragon is going to be tame. And so he's feeding the dragon and building up the dragon. And you wonder where where this leads. Did you see, by the way, that – so Tucker, um, Rod, Rod Dreher – is it D R E H E R? Who is tweeting? And let me just say, yeah, John, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just yeah. say that, that the when I say comes the revolution, I mean when when people that he likes come into power. Oh, right. No, they they card off people like him because this has always been the pattern, both on the far right and far left, is that you take the people that you were your 
you know, supposed enablers and you, you take, you get rid of them because the last thing you want hanging around are the sort of clever intellectuals who got you where you are. You, you, you just take those people away. And, you know, this is, I've spent my life, you know, a good part of my life studying authoritarianism. I began my career for people that don't mm-hmm. know, you know, who, who may be new to the broadcast. Um, you know, I'm, I was a Soviet expert. That was how I began my career. And I spent a lot of time in the old Soviet Union and in the briefly democratic Russia. And then again, in Putin's Russia. And, um, you know, these guys are playing with fire and they don't even know it and don't care. Well, it, well, since, it, it ups the ratings and they don't care. So since you mentioned that, so has the right now moved on from being fanboys of Vladimir Putin to being fanboys of Viktor Orban? Is is that, you know, sort of in the, in, in the background there that we, we really admire the strong man, but Putin is a little bit inconvenient. So since nobody knows who Viktor Orban is, we can go to Orban. And, and again, I was going to quote this Rod Dreher, who's quoting Tucker Carlson. The, you know, the final good thing about Hungary, says Tucker Carlson, that you are truly hated by all the right people. You know, because it's it's all about owning the libs. There's no positive agenda. You're hated by all the right people. And so I can embrace you without having all the baggage of, of the whole Russia Putin thing. You know, I'm, I, I've had a lot of conversations with Rod Dreher over the years. I actually like him. But, um, you know, the idea that your politics will boil down to being hated by the right people it really is kind of the that's kind of the gateway drug to yep. authoritarianism. Of, of many flavors of authoritarianism from, you know, fascism to caudioism. Um, once you've decided that you, you stand for nothing and stand against everything, um, the rest comes easy. Hey, let's take a, let's take a quick uh, break um, because I want to talk to you about, and we want to have some tough love for uh, some of our progressive friends, including this uh, soundbite from Corey Bush uh, that I want to share with you. I want to talk about the... Uh, the eviction moratorium politics and law and and your piece in the atlantic which is an excerpt from your book about the myth of the golden years in the united states we're talking with uh, with author pundit cat guy tom nichols we'll be back in just a moment Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like The Next Level Podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Okay, we are back with Tom Nichols. Okay, we've been talking about uh, the... The, the crazies on, well, not the crazies on the right. See, I think that that's unfair to say crazy because the Tucker Carlson, the, the Ben Dominics are, are not crazy. They, they know what they are doing. They know um, exactly. They know exactly. Right. So in, they in, 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 know what they're doing. So, so uh, maybe we have to, to divide this into three buckets. I mean, there are the genuine crazies out there who can be entertaining. Then there's just the complete stupid, which I find exhausting. And then there are these, these, the authoritarian, cynical, fascist, curious types who I think are, are really quite dangerous. Um, and right, right now, as you point out, they're an alliance that may not last, but they, you know, it's like, it's the, you know, the leopards eating people's faces party. They're just figuring that it will never eat their faces. You know, I, I think of them, <clears throat> we, we've, we're throwing around the word fascist a lot. And for me, even to use that word, because people know I'm really allergic to that word and I don't like using it unless you have really, you know, good evidence for it. And I think we're getting there. I think we're, I think, you know, the, the notion that the Republican Party is basically just becoming a f- 
sort of pre or proto fascist organization. But you know, it's funny. I maybe from years of studying the old Soviets, I think of all these people, people like Tucker and the the Fox lineup and the talk show guys. They are future apparatchiks in the old Soviet sense. These are people who are saying, look. Tell me what the party line is. And as long as I stay on the Central Committee's list for an apartment in D.C., I'll say it. Mm -hmm. You know, that this is, I mean, you know, a guy like Vance. What do I need to say to get out of Ohio, you know, to get out of the, um, you know, Midwestern regional oblast and be sent to the Central Committee uh, (laughs) block of apartments in D.C. as a senator? If I have to say it, I'll say it. Uh, and there's no there's no sense of right or wrong. It's simply no. whatever the party line is. And you say that because then you're on the list for an apartment and you get a better car and you can go to the right shops. And uh, to me, that's that's who these people are. That's what makes them really dangerous because they are not ideologues. They are not committed to the things they're saying. They are opportunists and self-promoters. And so, in some ways, people like that are more dangerous than fascists. All right, fascists let's- believe in stuff. These people don't. Well, or, or fascists, are, you know, may believe in, um, you know, things like who they really hate. I don't know. Right. I, I guess I think of fascism as less a coherent ideology than more just sort of a strutting posture. Kind of mm. an almost an aesthetic as opposed to, say, a doctrinaire um, belief. Am I wrong about that? No. And I think, you know, if if there is a, a growth of an American version of fascism, it will be the Mussolini variant you know, that you're kind of talking about, which is, um, you know, it has no, I mean, one of the things that bothers me when people talk about fascism, fascists, if you think of hard right regimes like the Nazis and, you know, the fascist movements that were around in Western Europe, they had highly articulated platforms. They actually, you know, there was actually like a line that they all followed. Um, I think what you're, I think you're right that this is more like this will be strutting and jutting, you know, like, I, I mean, every time I saw yeah. Trump, I thought, wow, this is like Mussol- a bad Mussolini impression. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that works, too. That riles up the that riles up the rubes and, you know, makes them shout and wave their pretty colored flags. Um, and, um, you know, that it's no less dangerous to democracy in that sense. Um, but it's it's just harder for them to consolidate and to to organize with each other because they, you know, half of them don't know what they're talking about and the other half don't really believe in it. All right, let's flip the, uh, the, the script a little bit here. Uh, trigger warning for some of our progressives. Some tough love is on the, the way here. Cori Bush is a Democratic congresswoman from Colorado. Uh, she led the, the sit-in on the Capitol steps pushing for uh, the, the eviction moratorium. I want to set that aside for a moment. So she's been in the news a lot. This soundbite is getting a lot of attention. And uh, I know you tweeted about it. I tweeted about it. And I just and the reason why I want to highlight it is because this is the kind of thing that could really torpedo Democrats in the midterm elections and going forward. And if you don't recognize the cognitive dissonance slash complete hypocrisy of this, um, then we need we need to talk. So, again, this is this is Cori Bush. And you, you may have seen this uh, this tweet out there. Um, it summarizes saying that, you know, I'm going to pay for private security for myself, but I favor abolishing the police. Uh, that may that looks at least on the surface. When I first saw that, I thought, well, that's probably an unfair paraphrase. Actually, it's pretty much exactly what she says. Let's play this soundbite from uh, Congressman Cory Bush. 
the thing. I won't let them get that off. You can't get that off. I'm going to make sure I have security because I know I have had attempts on my life and I have too much work to do. There are too many people that need help right now for me to, to allow that. So if I end up spending 200000 200, if I spend 10, 10, 10 more dollars on it, you know what? I get to be here to do the work. So suck it up and defunding the police has to happen. What? We need to defund the police and put that money into social safety nets. Okay, Tom. Uh, geez, in in this, it's th- there. She is in the same interview, talking about how she is prepared to spend two hundred thousand dollars on her own personal safety, but she's still using the phrase "defund the police." Look, I mean, at the most cynical level, that doesn't strike me as a terribly appealing political message. You know, <laughs> Jesus, jumping Christ! What do you yeah. even say about a? Mm. What do you even say about a? You know, I like you. When, when this thing first broke, I said, well, this is the usual hit job. They're probably taking her out of context, you know. And then I watched the – this is one of the few cases where when I watched the clip, it's worse than the original report when right. you actually watch it. Yeah. And underlying it is a – is exactly, you know, I was talking about the, well, as long as I get to be in D.C., right, and slagging our old conservative friends. This is exactly the same mindset. I am simply too important to risk, people. I have important things to do. So if I spend money on my security, that lets me be here in Washington to do important things for you. And you little people are just going to have to suffer, um, you know, living in your neighborhoods. This, This might be I mean, this is going to go on the wall with deplorables and the 49% and, you know, stupid things that you should never say. First of all, you shouldn't think them at all, but you if that thought passes through your head, it's certainly not a thought you ever needed to express. And I think that this is, you know, to, to take the old line from Rick Wilson, they are holistically bad at politics. And there's one other thing that I think is really important to point out, Charlie, because I think people... A lot of our progressive friends always say, well, what difference does it make really? You know, she's one candidate. What Democrats refuse to understand and embrace is that every candidate is now a national candidate. Every race is a national race. American elections, and this is really a poisonous thing, but it was it's unavoidable in an era of social media and 24-hour news. Every race is a national race. Cory Bush just made life incredibly difficult for a bunch of sensible, centrist uh, Democrats in purple districts across the United States. And this is where the Democrats simply have no message, discipline. Somebody in the Democratic Party should have been on the phone 10 minutes later saying, "Okay, you know, we we need to we need to talk. We need to talk right now. You know, the day after they defeat Nina Turner. Exactly. See, this is this is what makes this so frustrating. I think what ought to because, you know, two things happen. I mean, you you have Nina Turner, who is was the far left candidate running for for Congress, was defeated by Chantel Brown. I mean, this was really a big victory for the more moderate Democratic wing. Uh, It's it's certainly a sign the Democrats recognize how toxic uh, somebody like a Nina Turner would be. But then you have Cori Bush saying, "Okay, but still, you you know, if you Republicans are looking for a face you want to put on the party, here I am talking about spending $200,000 on myself, but cutting police for you. You know, put also this in the context of Eric Adams winning the Democratic primary for New York City mayor. Um, he ran on a 
very sort of, uh, you know, pro-law and order uh, plank. And he defeated the candidates that were using that had associated themselves with defund the police because low income people in New York are looking around going, no, I, you know, you, you, you folks that live in, on the Upper East Side of, of Manhattan may think it's cool to play around with ideas like defunding police, but I want a cop, you know, when I get on the subway, I want a cop when I go down to the, you know, you know to the grocery store, uh, all of those things. So, you know, and, and Charlie, you and Democrats do seem to get it, you know. You and I having, you know, spent some time and, you know, you, you especially, mm-hmm. but, you know, having, Spend some time in Republican politics. We can assure progressive listeners that right now there are people at Republican Party HQ with that clip weaponizing it, weaponizing it and figuring out what to do with it. And, you know, I'm sorry, uh, but when people say, well, Republicans will slam us anyway and they'll they'll smear us, you know, don't help them. Don't don't hand them the ammunition don't make that job so easy that it's, you know, I used to say to, to friends when I was a Republican, they'd say, well, you Republicans just steal elections and you cheat and you do. All, I'm like, no, but most Republican elections are won by default. That Democrats either don't show up or they run somebody who is so, you know, abjectly incompetent that simply putting an R next to somebody's name does it. This is another one of those cases where. The, the, it's just a it's just a complete um, gift handed to Republicans who who can then say Democrats are hypocrites. They'll protect themselves. They'll you know have security for themselves. This this is really one of the most shockingly dumb things I've it ever is. seen happen in American it, politics. It, it, it is because you know Democrats all around the country are going, no, we don't favor defunding the police. No, that's not us. No, and in, in fact, right now we are the ones who are backing the blue. We in fact are standing with, are with law enforcement. And so, what does Cory Bush come out and do and say? No, wait, wait, wait. The worst caricature you could possibly draw on Fox News. I'm going to become that person. I'm going to well, say it. De- I think Democrats have have, you know, recaptured some ground that they lost a, a lot of years ago by saying, look, we are you. We are the ordinary people like you. The Republicans are. And I think, you know, this is one of the saddest uh, role exchanges of roles that I as a former Republican. I mean, when I was a kid in the 80s, I felt like the Republicans were the party of kind of ordinary people and working folks. Yep. And the Democrats had become these kind of out of touch elitists. And then here's a Democrat stepping forward and saying, listen, if I have to spend 200,000 on my very important self so that I can come to Washington, well, you have to do without the police, you know, the party demands sacrifices, comrade. All right. And so it's so, just unbelievable. So one of the reasons why Cori Bush is so prominent right now is because she led the campaign to um, extend the moratorium on evictions, um, which had been decreed by the CDC. And this has been a very, very strange week because you have, uh, Cong- you, you have the U.S. Supreme Court and other federal courts who basically said, yes, this uh, this is uh, this exceeds your statutory authority. The CDC cannot simply um, decree that landlords uh, cannot evict people. I mean, there, there are property rights issues. I mean, they, they are people too, believe it or not. Um, but also, uh, if you, if you want to continue this moratorium, you have to have congressional action. Well, Congress doesn't act. There's no congressional action. The court has made it clear the CDC does not have the power. So you have this weird moment where you have uh, President Biden um, previewing the fact that his administration is about to extend this 
this moratorium and admitting very explicitly it's probably going to be thrown out by the courts. I can't recall a moment where you had a president saying, yes, I'm going to do something. It's illegal, but at least, you know, we'll have some time before the courts bust us on all of this. And all of this was to appease the left wing of his party. It was you know, I have to I have to admit that, you know, Tom, we've spent the last five years talking about the rule of law, about norms, about the Constitution, and they they really ought to matter even when it comes to progressive agendas. Like, I don't want to see people evicted either, but I also don't want the president saying, yeah, I'm about to do something that is unconstitutional and illegal, and because I want to, and everybody going, oh, this is just so great, this is so fantastic. And one of the one of the problems that the Democrats have always had is that they that they think that when they win an election, they're never going to lose an election and that anything they've done will not be precedent. And, mm. you know, I, I I brought this up back. I mean, I've I, I think as a good conservative for years, I've been an opponent of excessive affirmative uh, um, executive orders, mm. um, you know, the the kind of. um uh, you know, the kind of affirmation of uh, executive power that I think goes too far constantly that both parties have um, affirmed over and over again to their to their detriment. And, um, you know, but I and I tried to tell this to Democrats when when President Obama said, I have a pen and a phone. Yep. Well, OK, a Republican president's going to walk in and say, hey, look at that. Same pen, same phones right here. It's so amazing. Anybody who has this desk gets this pen and this phone, um, you know, and this this excessive deference and this excessive affirmation of the need for executive power. The Democrats are, are answering and they're saying, OK, but Congress wouldn't do it and someone has to. So the president does. Well, first of all, that's not how the Constitution works. Right. That's not how a system of separated powers works. And if Congress isn't doing its job, then you have to get on Congress. The president cannot just constantly step in and and fix it whenever Congress isn't doing something. I mean, Trump made that argument. This this is the part the part that you know is really shocking. Biden is making the same argument Donald Trump used to make. Yes. Congress wouldn't do it, so I have to. And I know it's probably illegal, but what are you going to do? Now, <clears throat> the Democrats, I can hear the howling before we've even aired mm. this. But Trump was trying to overturn the government, and Biden is just trying to protect poor people. Right, and that's true. That you know to say. One violation of the law is not does not have the same incredible you know evil intent that the other one does, but that doesn't change the fact that it's a violation of the law, and you don't get a the Constitution doesn't have a but it's a nice thing to do disclaimer if you want to violate the Constitution. Well, I would also and put I, it put it in in in, a, in another term um, that we've been talking about fascism and authoritarianism every time um the federal government um the federal government claims the power that you know we, if we simply declare an emergency or if we simply invoke this therefore we suddenly have these vast powers uh to control the economy or to control individual choices understand that 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 can be flipped as well and so right. right now it may be virtuous exercise of 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 power but again this is something that conservatives have been arguing for some time you know the government that is what is that that quote you know the government is big enough to do everything for you um is big enough to take everything from you or do all kinds of bad things as well so right. keep in mind do do how do you feel 
about a, a second Trump administration declaring a health emergency, which then give, gives them uh, the power to do X, Y, and Z, because that's the way it works when you establish these precedents, which is why it is good to restrain government, to follow the rule of law, and to take the system of checks and balances seriously um, when you're in power because the other guy is going to be in power at some point, and that can be genuinely frightening. Let me, let me put it this way to Democrats and steal a lyric from an old song. Anything Democrats can do, Republicans can do better. Mm. And they will do it for a far worse reason. Once you establish these precedents... Republicans will tent their fingers like Monty Burns and say, excellent. And then they will use them. And, I'm, and I, know, I, I know the arguments that Democrats are going to make. They're going to say, why do we always have to follow the rules? Why do we always have to be the ones observing the norms? Why do we? Because you are the ones that want to be the governing party and the protectors of the Constitution. And if you want to continue to be that party, you're just going to have to be you know, you're going to have to be better than your opponents. And I think they are. I mean, I think I, I don't want anybody listening, certainly not listening to me to think that, you know, it's like, wow, the Democrats have become as bad as the Republicans. I don't think either of us are saying that. I think what we're saying is Democrats don't step into these bear traps that the Republicans will happily trigger and then later use for far more nefarious, far more dangerous purposes than, than anything you're doing right now. It's not that Cori Bush is going to, you know, take over the government and make the police go away. And it's not that Joe Biden is going to become an American Caesar. It's that when you're setting up these precedents and you're behaving this way, you're, you're rationalizing and legitimating the Republicans who will inevitably come after you to do things in that same, for those same reasons and for much more terrifying purposes. I agree. Um, you're having kind of a big day today. Your your book is coming out, Our Own Worst Enemy. I just want to remind people about the event on August 19th, which uh, you can sign up for. Uh, also, The Atlantic is, has excerpted the book. Um, you can find this online at The Atlantic. The Myth of the Golden Years, Whether Economic Times Are Good or Bad, The Lament for the Old Days of Factories and Mills Never Changes. This is an interesting point because, of course, at the heart of this populist critique of, Ameri of American democracy is they looking around, seeing the American carnage, you know, people, you know, dying, um, you know, being unemployed and saying this is an example of this is this is the result of the failure of liberal democracy. And what you point out is that central to this criticism is this nostalgia for an idealized past that always makes the present seem terrible. Some of this manipulation comes from political charlatans, but sincere concerns come from some political and economic elites, especially those who are products of a class transition and advancement through education and relocation. So just talk for a moment. Um, and I know we'll, we'll spend more time talking about your book later, but this this power of the myth of the golden years that there was this idealized past and that we need to take America back. And if we had just did not have all of these, you know, the, these liberal democratic failures. Um, and by the way, those are all, you know, small L, small D failures, um, that things would be so much you know, better for all of us. Didn't was there yeah, was, that, wasn't, that, wasn't there a golden age in America? No. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, the, this is the what people are thinking they remember I, is the period from about 1945 to 1960, 
where, you know, the world was in ruins. America was the unchallenged, you know, leader of uh, a capitalist economy where, you know, we were, we had geared up for World War II, there a lot of manufacturing, um, you know, aerospace um, in California, you know, building all those tract homes. But that was a kind of unique blip in, in world history. And what, when people talk about, well, you know, Donald Trump really was a response. The Republican Party today is a response to the forgotten towns. A couple of things that are so wrong with this. First of all, my, my town, the one I wrote about in the piece, all of that industrial decline was basically complete by about 1980. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so this notion that somehow like the Chinese swept in and destroyed all these towns. I mean, that was a big economic theory in the early 2000s, and that's already starting to fall apart. Um, because it turns out that the, tw- the 2000s weren't as bad as people thought they were. Um, and the data just isn't there. It's a perception, but it's not its not a, a reality. The reality is people have been looking at empty <clears throat> factories for a long time. And I'll just tell you a quick story. One of my best friends from my hometown, he, he, was compla- he had voted for Trump and he, he was complaining about, you know, the state of everything. And he pointed at the factories and he said, I, those factories, you know, the, my my restaurant used to be full with workers. And, and I, I just looked at it for a minute. And I said, you and I broke the windows in that empty factory in the early <laughs> 1970s. That factory has not been full in any time that you can remember. And he just kind of blinked for a moment because he, it had just he had kind of come to this fantasy that that factory in his memory was this, you know, happy workers with newsboy caps and, you know, sitting and eating their sandwiches on a girder and everything. That factory was empty when we were 11 Hmm. in Hmm. the early 1970s. And that nostalgia has been sold over and over and over again. You know, Youngstown, I mentioned in the the book, the people who talk about um, the day the big Youngstown mill closed. I, I went back and did the math. That mill closed 44 years ago. I'm sorry, but if you worked there and you were put out of work, you're if you can remember that, you're pretty old. But it's, um, a, this myth has a, has quite a, has a, has, has a it's got a grip, fierce yes. grip, right? Fierce grip on the public imagination. The, and you know that it was is, it was central to Trump's appeal and to this populist yep. appeal, the JD Vance appeal. Well, when people say, you know, the factories are all gone and we need them back, I always turn and I say, Have you ever been in a factory? Have you ever walked into one of these buildings when it was, because I had, Mm -hmm. my mom worked for a company um, that, you know, made paper, which is still there. Um, You know, people who say we need these factory jobs back. I always want to say why? So that immigrants can work them because you won't trust me that you are not going to work these jobs because that tells me you've never been inside a factory. But they, they say, but in 1970, you know, Archie Bunker could afford his own house in Queens. Well, yeah, because he didn't have to compete with women and black people. And, um, you know, there, that was a whole different time. If you really want to live, the, the conservative writer, Kevin Williamson, has, has this great line. He says, if you really want to live like it's 1957, that lifestyle is available to you and very cheap. The problem is that when people remember these things, they don't remember all the other stuff that goes with it. It's like, I wish it were 1960 again, but with civil rights and air conditioning and 180 channels and internet porn and gambling. And, you know, people forget that 
they they would not want to live the way their parents lived at their age. You know, well, college was cheaper. Yes. And no one went to college. This is the other thing. Well, college was cheaper in 1970. And a small handful of men went to college. Almost nobody else went. But when I started college in 1979, only about 13 or 14% of American women went to college. So, so if that's the better time, you have at it. You know, it's, it is interesting. You know, we don't have enough time to get into it. But I mean, you know, listening to you, I'm, I'm thinking about some of the things that were written and said before our current, uh, before this particular crisis that we're embroiled in right now, that really life has improved so dramatically by any measure that we are living. Uh, we're living longer. We're living healthier. Uh, we have more prosperity. We have more choices. So the real paradox of America right now is why are we not happier? We're not happy because we are, um, we've gotten used to a high standard of living and it bores us. It bores us. Even, even the poorest among us, um, you know, I, I won't say the very poorest. I mean, there are people still in Appalachia, you know, living without running water. But the even the, the working poor that once, you know, were part of this giant debate about what to do about poverty. Um, people, the average American home has between two and three televisions in it. I mean, this is just <clears throat> the sta- these kind of small little um, factoids that kind of blow my mind that people say, yeah, but that doesn't really mean anything. No, actually, you know, it, it means a lot. I mean, the, the idea that you're living now to compare your living standard now to within your living memory, say to 1980 would be dramatic and people have just gotten used to it and they're bored. They want meaning in their life. They want big drama in their life. They want everything to be interesting you know, we have created a, a culture where everybody feels that like their work and their life has to be, you know, everything they've ever seen in the movies. And that is going to kill us because when you spend all day stewing in, in a sense of relative deprivation and resentment, then you will always come to the conclusion that someone has screwed you and it's probably the, the government. And that means democracy's got to go. So you and I will talk about this uh, much more in detail over the next coming weeks. The book is coming. When is the pub date on the book? August 19th. It's the drops the day you and I go on, uh, go to politics and pros. I got, I got it in the mail yesterday. Just so you know, I'm, I'm holding it in my hand. Our own worst <laughs> enemy, the assault from within on modern democracy by Tom Nichols published by Oxford university press. Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast again. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.